Well, good morning. Good morning. Everybody okay? Yeah? We'll wait for the last to, to come, and then we'll just go ahead and start. And uh, I, um, I'm grateful for this opportunity just to share, share a, a little something. Um, you got, everyone got the book, right? The Kingdom Matrix. And if you didn't get one... Um, I don't know what else to say. We bought 2,200 of them, so that should have been one for almost everybody. But uh, thank you, yeah. I, 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 the, the whole idea and what we're, I'm going to spend in a very short amount of time, and then I'll have some time for Q&A afterwards, so it's going to be very compact. But uh, just to give you a feeling for what we're, what we're looking at in this thing, it's designing a church for the kingdom of God, and... Um, and so, you know when you get, when you, when you experience something, and you live it, and you see it, and you weren't even realizing it was different. You just realized it was the norm, it was the way, you might, you might have been your family, you're growing up in a certain way, and then you moved away from your family, and moved to a different area, and all of a sudden the world was way different. Well, well that's kind of the genesis of where this, this idea came from. Um, how many of you have ever read the book or gone through the work, the study by Henry Blackaby called Experiencing God. So most. And um, it, was, it was about a time in history in the late 70s and early 80s where um, in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, a place probably not many of you have ever been to or probably some of you have never even heard of. And, uh, and it was about two or three pastors uh, a guy named Jack Connor, a guy named Henry Blackaby, and a guy named Len Coster, who looked at a province of about a million people and said, look at all these cities and all these towns that have no evangelical witness in them. This isn't right. And, and so together, these three guys, they were graduates of Golden Gate Baptist Seminary, and they, they came from Golden Gate to Saskatchewan, and they, they started a church, and then that church started another church, and that church, those churches started churches, and, um, and there was this synergy that was going on. Like, and I grew up as a, as, a, as a youngster in that environment. That's all, that's, that was the norm for me. I thought this is what church was about. And so I watched... Uh, another church in another town get planted and I'd watch three or four churches working together to plant that new church. And I would see this again over in this next town. And, um, and I really, really thought that's the way it was. I thought that was the norm. I thought that was just, because that was my only experience. And, uh, and then I, I graduated from high school and I went to university and I moved away from there to a whole different context and I, I discovered a new normal where churches looked at one another as competition and where the market, <laughs> what, we were, what we were trying to go for, it seemed like, and I'm, I'm painting extremes, this is not everybody, but just from my young, young uh, experience, it seemed like what we were trying to do is get our share of the pie which was the best or highest percentage of those most likely to come to church. 
and we would tweak our worship services and do all kinds of things to get our market share of. And so I saw this new normal, and I saw um, churches that could predict their trajectory and their growth with you know, chilling accuracy, ch- predict their, um, their budget next year. And, uh, and it's going to be 6% above last year. And bang, there it was, 6%. And, um, and I'm looking at this thing and going, you know, this, this new normal, you know, seems a lot uh, saner in a lot of ways. Um, yet, it, it wasn't, a- after a while, it really wasn't doing the things that I had for me. And... And one of those things that we all know, that when you see something, you're accountable for it, right? When you learn something, you're accountable for what you learned. And so I went from, as a young boy and teenager, growing up with one normal, and then moving away from that and and going through sort of a formal education process with another normal, and then um, almost forgetting my first normal, and beginning to work out of my second normal. And, um, and I began, and I, I, God called me, I won't tell the whole story, but I, uh, my whole life has been given to planting churches. And I've planted some pretty cool ones. I've planted bombs. I've planted, you know, you know everything in between. And, um, and, and in the, somewhere around between the planting of church two and the planting of church, my th- the church three, um, God just began to break my heart for the new normal and reminded me of, of something that I, I knew and something that was right and something that was better. And so I had this picture in my brain. And, uh, and I won't share the story because it's just going to be too long. And I just want to get the high points today. But I had this picture in my brain of something that I had seen and a bunch of pastors who, when they began to teach on the Gospels and talk about the Sermon on the Mount, they really talked about it like it was literal. It wasn't some kind of a metaphor for something else. And, um, and they began to teach about this is how kingdom living is. And that the passages on the kingdom of God were not necessarily how you enter into the kingdom of God, although they were, but they were more how you live in the kingdom of God. And the way the church behaves if it is a kingdom-centered church. And so that's what I just want to spend a few, few moments. And I, today I'll start by clearing up three myths. And if you look in the book, we start that way. We start with three myths that are absolutely believed by the evangelical church. And yet uh, I think they're clearly aberrations to what uh, Jesus had, had taught. Um, I'm going to st- start, you see these, they say some bookends and acts. Uh, Vance already stole my thunder on this one, if you were at his thing. This is, the, this is how the book of Acts starts, Acts 1-3. And, uh, and it's very interesting to me and that Jesus, when you think about his whole mission, he had one opportunity, 40 days, to pour into the life of his disciples and and. Honestly, guys, if we were just being really honest here, and we're saying Jesus was going to be hanging out with us, and he was going to spend 40 days with us, probably we would come up with a different agenda than the kingdom of God, wouldn't we? If we're honest. We would probably come up with evangelism, or we'd probably come up with church planting, 
or we'd probably come up with discipleship, or we'd probably have something that's different than, than this subject that Jesus talked about, the kingdom of God. But his last opportunity to pour into the lives of his disciples, and he speaks on this one subject, and then you just trace it all the way through the book of Acts, and, uh, and you hear this theme again. We know what Jesus talked about uh, 84 to 3 in, his, in, his, in, in terms of references the church to the kingdom of God in the Gospels. So we know what that's talking about. But then we get to the very end and we see the same thing. There's Paul shackled <laughs> in prison, you know, not shackled, but in house arrest. And, um, and what is he trying to pour in to everybody's life? The kingdom of God. So, must be important. Now, the, these myths... Um, these, these three assumptions. This first assumption is what I call the myth of the third kingdom. And that is at any moment, um, I am either expanding the kingdom of God by my obedience to him, or I am expanding the realm of darkness by my disobedience to him. Now, that might sound a little bit too black and white for some of us, but the Bible doesn't give us any other option. There are two spiritual sources of inspiration. They're not equal, but they're two very separate spiritual sources of inspiration. And, uh, and so at any given moment, I am being inspired by one of those two sources to, to behave in a certain way and to act in a certain way. And the fruit of that action expands the source that it came from. And so I, I, I know for sure, I can tell you, you can tell me, we can all talk about many times, we know, we know, we know, absolutely for certain that um, God inspired us to take a step of faith, and it was crazy faith, and it made no sense, but you know God spoke to you, and so you have taken those steps of faith, and you've seen God do incredible things, and you go, Wow. And not a second, did, not a nanosecond in your mind did you ever think about taking the credit for it. It would have it nauseated you to even think about taking the credit for it. Because you know that you know that you know that God had um, directed that and that was all him. And the results of that expand his kingdom. You knew that. We also know on the other side of this thing that there are times we know that God has asked us to do something we didn't do it. Or probably... As common, God has forbidden us to do something, and we did do it. And we can, we can write down many times where we've been in that world, too. And we know the source of inspiration that tempted us to live and behave in that way came from a very dark place. And we know that the results of that um, inspire or affect the, the, the realm of darkness, and the ripples of that move, move as well. So we're very clear about these two dominions, these two realms, these two spiritual sources. But the evangelical world, in my view, is duped because we have a a, a third kingdom, the kingdom of inconsequence. We know when we're on one of the two extremes, but we often think that there's a whole other category of stuff that just doesn't really matter. It's, It's not that spiritual. And, uh, and we spend some time in the book looking at that one and seeing, you know, from Scripture that that is not there. And so every, every decision that I make as a church leader 
is inspired by a spiritual source, and it expands the realm of that source. That's significant, because sometimes um, some of the things that are are very culturally accepted in evangelical Christianity um, come from a very dark place. And our obedience to that darkness cannot expand the kingdom of God. And if it cannot expand the kingdom of God, what, what is it doing? And so we look at that, and uh, we won't spend time there. The second thing is that it, 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 it is possible, I call this the myth of church growth. It is possible to participate in an incredible effort to expand your church, and I'll be generous, and unintentionally be an agent for expanding the kingdom of darkness or shrinking the kingdom of God, whichever way you want to look at it. Now, you can just go look through the annals of history to see it. It's again and again and again and again and again. But certainly, we can, we can see it in our, in our, own, um, in our own realm. If, if a church grows with explosive growth... And, uh, and you do the interviewing of the people that are coming to that church, and you're finding out that 96% of that church, um, of the people from that church, are coming from neighboring churches all around, smaller churches all around. And, and people who are once involved in ministry in, in other settings are now um, just sort of hiding in, a very other, in another thing. Has the kingdom of God expanded by that? In fact, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of mask this, but the BBC did a documentary. And, uh, and you know, liberal Brits, you know, they're like can, us Canadians. They're, they're uh, you know, we don't, we don't have a very, uh, a very uh, affirming view of the church. And, uh, and, and the BBC did a, a, a study, and their supposition was that ch- the church or Christianity has no net benefit to culture or society. And, uh, and so to prove their thesis, they went to, and I won't name it, but it, by, it's the most um, Christian city on earth. If you measure Christianity by the number of churches per population and the number of churchgoers on the ratio. And, um, and so they went to, for, for a major urban area, they went to that, that particular city and they, they went and they started counting things. And they started counting social dysfunction and started measuring um, crime rates and, and uh, abuse rate and homelessness and just going on and on and alcoholism and all the, all the problems that society has and found that this very Christian city um, dragged along the bottom 15% of similar-sized cities around the world where the Christian presence is not there. Then they went to go and interview the pastors, and many of the pastors were from our tribe, and said, so what do you do with these this, this findings? And universally, the pastor's response was, well, it's not really our problem, not really my problem. My problem is my flock, and, uh, and my, my responsibility is to shepherd my flock. And so, you know, here we see, see you know, a picture of, of, of church growth, but the, the, the idea of what the church is supposed to do didn't seem to have a, an incredible influence in the context of where it was. 
I mean, there's a, there's a parallel that we can look at. Some of you remember in the 1990s. How many of you ever invested in WorldCom? Anybody? Enron? Any one of those? Uh, I did. I'm just saying. And, um, and, and in the 90s, Alan Greenspan, Greenspan called it the age of irrational exuberance. That was how he characterized the thing. Because the only thing that really people were looking at, like there were, there were guys who knew what they were talking about in the stock market, but nobody wanted to hear them. Like the Warren Buffetts, you know. They, they understood that like companies were supposed to be measured by value. And, uh, you know, the company was supposed to actually produce something and make money. And, uh, and share prices should be tied to that sort of equation. But we, most of North America, most of the world wasn't interested in listening to Warren Buffett. We had like way cooler talking heads on all these little uh, shows that were popping up on all the cable stations. And they were telling us, invest in this, invest in this, invest in this. And... Um, you know, and, and the whole thing was on share price. I mean, they didn't understand value or talk about value. It was like, well, shares went up, shares went up. And so we just began putting our money into this thing and the next thing. You heard like naysayers talking about bubbles and stuff like that, but I didn't listen to bubbles. You know, Who wanted to listen to some dinosaur in a paneled room somewhere with a telephone with a dial probably? You know, who wants to listen to that guy when there's cool guys here that, you know, understood what Casual Friday was about? They got, they got things. And... and uh, and so, so I, I put a lot of money into WorldCom, yeah, bunch. And um, you know, my my investments grown to about well, you know just pennies. <laughs> I think I think it was actually the the if I went and asked for a certificate, it, the paper would cost more than what you know. It's just uh, it, it's just gone to nothing because the idea of inputs and outputs are important to understand here. And as a denomination, as evangelical culture, we have been concentrating our efforts on outputs for a long time. And so we'll do anything to get the sale. We'll do anything to get the number. We'll do whatever we need to do. And somehow the inputs of what Jesus is talking about, the kingdom of God, get forgotten along the way. And we don't really believe that if we follow the process of the kingdom, that the outputs will come, but they'll be his fruit. And there'll be natural fruit, and it won't be the kind of fruit that we can produce on our own. And so, say that to say, it is possible to be involved in growing a church. It's possible to be involved in planting a church. And in my efforts, I have not expanded the kingdom an inch. And in my view, the North American Mission Board, we shouldn't... As a denomination, we shouldn't be behind starting things that should have never been started in the first place. And not everything should be reproduced. And not every church should be reproduced. And, uh, but there are many, many, many that look a lot like Jesus that we should get behind in a very, very big way and reproduce those. And so it's possible. A third thing. So the myth of the third kingdom, the myth of church growth, and then the third myth and... Uh, and that's just the myth of an alien. And that is, it's impossible, it is possible to unknowingly value the kingdom of God before that person has ever understood its source. And that is the king himself. Where you're living, 
we have, and we hear it on a regular basis, we've characterized um, what lostness looks like. And we draw a straw man. And, uh, and we assign every sort of evil thing to that straw man and say, that's what a lost person is. And we have so scared the church <laughs> that uh, they don't, we don't want anything to do with that lost person. Because they're such an evil picture that we've painted for them that we just want to run from them. But you know what? How do you describe or how do you explain um, the things that you see going around where you have lostness? You have people who have never understood the gospel message, maybe never have clearly heard the gospel message. And yet things that the kingdom are about, they are very interested in. What do you do with that incongruency? What do you do with a church that uh, the things that the kingdom is about, they're not interested in, but lost people are interested in things that are kingdom-esque? Here's where I learned something that was pretty neat. I had this suspicion just in my interaction. We planted a church called the Sanctuary in Oakville and um, Ontario, suburb of Toronto. And, uh, and we, we spent a year... Um, getting to know people. There were three, we had three families. And this time when we planted a church, we were really honestly saying um, only, you know, you heard people say us four, no more. You know, well, that's really what we were doing. <laughs> we're saying we got four Christians here, no more. Just lost people from now on. And, um, and so we had four Christian families and we said, we cut, we shut the doors to anybody else. And we said, we're just going after lost people. And so we spent um, a year building relationships with everybody we could possibly, through business channels, through neighbors, through whatever, until we could get to the point where I thought we might be able to put 50 or 60 lost people in a room that would trusted us enough to come one time to help us and uh, to give us advice. And so our wives made a bunch of homemade lasagnas, and we had salad, and we, we made, had a room about this size in a community center. We put uh, a series of round tables with eight, eight chairs around them. And, uh, and we, we filled this, we, this thing. We invited these people. Would you come? We were starting a church. We want you to help us figure this thing out. And so we want your advice. And I said, I won't embarrass you. I promise that. I'm really only going to ask one simple question. That's all it's going to be. And, uh, and so everyone said, well, okay. And, and I didn't know because sometimes people say, okay, and you don't know, right? Well, we invited them, and, and they came. We ended up with 60 adults in that room. And, um, and, and so we, these guys not, didn't necessarily know one another because they were more connected to the other four families here. But we began to ask, you know, we began to have some small talk. Everybody was, was talking way. And then I said, okay, now comes the work part. You got the meal, and now comes the work. <laughs> and I said, around your table, for, do two things. One, elect a captain. And two, um, discuss this topic. And I said, describe your ideal spiritual community. These, nobody here goes to church, not one person. Describe your ideal community. What's important, what's not important. What's significant? What's insignificant? What, what would excite you? What would turn you off? Just describe your ideal spiritual community. And so um, left it there, and it was kind of quiet. No, people weren't really doing a lot of talking. And then, um, and then pretty soon there was a buzz in the room. There was, you heard a one 
pretty soon and then pretty soon ever. There, there was a great conversation happening. I let it run for about 15 minutes. And then I said, okay, okay, stop, if you would. Um, elect your captain and uh, come on up here and, and just share what you guys have, have said. And so one by one, we had a, a whiteboard up there, or not a white, a flip chart up there, and we started writing these things down that people said. You know what the top three things were that these people said? Again, these are the, the pagan people that we're supposed to be scared of. Number one, God would be important every day, not just one day. Number two, it would be a spiritual community that would look after the emotional, physical, spiritual, all the needs of everybody in that spiritual community. That would be a part of their ideal spiritual community. And number three, it would be a spiritual community that would take responsibility for the needs in the greater community. I had my finger jammed into the second chapter of the book of Acts. I was, pro- I was planning on doing that anyway. I read the last few verses slowly. And these guys were leaning forward and listening. I said, do you guys get it? I said, the things that are, you're longing for in your heart that you've just described to me are the very things that Jesus says his church is supposed to be about it's the very thing that it's about in my heart as well. God has put that in my heart too. So why don't we do this together? Why don't we start this church together? And, and, and uh, you know what? In the next 12 months, we baptized 52 of those people. And that was the beginning of something that became a church that didn't understand that church was about saving itself, about keeping, about consolidating understood that the church was a kingdom thing. It was about giving yourself and giving away. And so before we were strong enough to do anything, we were planting another church and another church and another church and another church until, you, you know, the, an amazing picture to watch all that happened in that 10 years to see that happen. Something is going on in the lives of people all around us that when they're seeing, if you're going and you're doing a poll, and you're saying, God, thumbs up or thumbs down? They're saying, thumbs up. Spirituality, thumbs up or thumbs down? They're saying, thumbs up. Jesus, thumbs up or thumbs down? Most of the time, they'll say, thumbs up. Church, thumbs up or thumbs down? Most of the time, they're saying, thumbs down. Because they have a picture of church that isn't Jesus' picture of church. And so... I would like to take, oh man, the rest of this book takes these assumptions and breaks them down. So hit the next slide. And I'm going to nail this in 15 minutes and take some time for questions and answers. Just keep banging her until we see some stuff. All right. So here's the division. I won't spend much time here, but we understand this, this idea very, very clearly, this, this separation of what's sacred and secular. And, um, and it was understood in Jesus' day too, wasn't it? But Jesus never talked about it. You ever find any discussion where Jesus really says, this is an important subject to understand what's sacred and understand what's secular. We understand it. And so we, you know, we're somehow, some of us are, feel guilty if we listen to a secular song. And uh, because we're supposed to listen to sacred music. And, uh, or if we read a secular book, because we're supposed to read sacred books. But can you go to the sacred bookstore 
and use your secular money to purchase a sacred book that was published by a sacred publisher designed for a sacred audience, can you read that book and dry up? Can you read that book and discover that and follow the teachings of that book and God just becomes a genie in the jar that if you pray in the right way or rub him the right way, he's going to do whatever you need to do? Certainly you can. Yet under the, under the sacred banner, we can see all kinds of stuff that we do that doesn't expand the kingdom of God at all, doesn't do anything to create any intimacy with, with God, and it does the exact opposite. How about this? Can, is it possible to be driving down the highway and um, just really sort of zoning out, and you know, you're punching the numbers on, your, on the dial or the, on your, on your um, radio, and you, and, and you listen to the sacred station for a little bit, and you go, oh, I can't handle this, and you keep going, and... Um, and you hit a secular one, and all of a sudden there's like some really drippy, sappy love song, you know, that's secular. But, you know, you don't want to admit it, but you kind of like it. It's got some memory or something like that, and you're listening to this, this secular love song, and you're going, ah. And then if you're married, you're thinking about your husband or your wife, and you're going, wow, you know, God, I love that woman. And you, you go home and you say, I'm, I'm not going to behave like I usually do. And you hit the, the, the florist on the way home or the grocery store if you're a woman in the T-bone section. And, um, and, you, and you come back with this love gift and say, honey, I've just been thinking about you. I love you so much. I, I don't deserve you as a mate. You have been an incredible blessing to me. Now, did what happened in that transaction with a secular song? Did the kingdom of darkness expand? Uh-huh. Probably the kingdom of God expanded as you built up your mate. And, uh, and so this idea here doesn't mean anything. Jesus talked about two other, these two other realms, dominion of darkness and uh, the kingdom of God. And that's what I talked about earlier. These are the forms. Keep punching there. There we go. These are the forms. And so if you, uh, the sources of inspiration found in two forms that we're very familiar with. The forms aren't particularly helpful, although they're a little helpful sometimes. But the sources are extremely helpful. So I, I, we, let's talk, look at those four things. And so where the darkest section, where the secular and the dominion of darkness come, this is the picture. We call, I call these people self-seekers. This is the... The way that Seinfeld describes them, I mean, when they, the writers of Seinfeld came up with their idea, basically their mantra as they wrote Seinfeld was, no hugging, no growth. And all the way through every episode, everything goes like that. To the very end, if you can remember, they're getting locked up in prison and they had all the last episode and all the witnesses that were called against them were, were people who... Um, had all kinds of, of evidence that these guys were of no redeeming value to society. And, um, and one after the next after the next, so they began to go, and then they, were, they, were, they had no concept of why they were going into prison. They broke this law. This is the picture of this, this idea of this very self-seeking individual, darkness and secular. Now, when darkness and the sacred come together, I call these people this brand expanders. Because it becomes our brand that we're most concerned about expanding. It is the highest value for us. And uh, 
And so when you look at this passage, um, you see, but, but mark these, there'll be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, and then having a form of godliness, but none of the power. That describes a lot of what can happen in church. We can have a form of godliness, but we don't see the power of God. Because the power of God comes with the ways of God. And the ways of God comes with the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God comes with expanding the brand of the kingdom of God. Not our brand that we have here. And so it's an entirely different way. Now, the second, where the secular and the kingdom seekers, I mean kingdom of God come together. I call this group of people kingdom seekers. And this explains, like I've got a, when, when, when the tsunami hit, uh, I mean, sorry, the earthquake hit in Haiti. Remember that? Incredible, massive destruction. I have a friend that uh, I began to uh, ride a motorcycle with, developed a relationship with, and he started to even come to church. And uh, totally not a, any work, Christian worldview at all. And, um, and yet when that earthquake leveled Haiti, something happened in his spirit, big time. And he, he, he's an EMS driver. And he went and uh, rounded up prosthetic devices, rounded up crutches. He went and found a way to get to Haiti. He paid his own way to get to Haiti. And he took his own family vacation time to get to Haiti to serve there. Now, what would inspire that person? Hell? You know, darkness? Does darkness inspire us to behave sacrificially like that? No. I mean, there, there's the, we're, we're created in the image of God. God's thumbprint is on every single human. And, and, and we have this sense where there's this residual wiring that's broken. We don't get it. But there's, we're like homing pigeons, and we see the true thing. Not everybody responds, but many people respond when they see the true thing, the kingdom thing. They go... Now, this is intriguing to me. Now, I'm interested in this. And, uh, and there, there is a bunch of people that are living there. And the last group where the sacred and the kingdom of God come together, I call these people kingdom expanders. That's where we want to position ourselves. And so we spend a bunch of time here, five minutes, go through, hit all the buttons. Just keep hitting, hitting, hitting. And, uh, and look at different ideas of how radically one idea looks in those four different spaces. Let me look at resources and just keep hitting them. Resources... Uh, self-seekers see resources as theirs. Everything they have is theirs. Why in the world should I give anything to anybody? I worked hard for it. It's mine. When we see resources where the brand expanders, what do we do with the resources that God gives us? Well, we provide goods and services for our folks. And, uh, and, we, and we basically become religious consumers. But there's a group of people here who have this idea of karma, <laughs> They, they think, well, you know, this idea of spiritual reciprocity. If I, I do something, uh, it's going to come back to me in some way. And that's not even what karma teaches, really. But we'll go with that. We'll let them call it karma. And um, karma is really, you know, you're going to become a dung beetle. It's not good news for you. And, um, but, but, uh, but here's this idea of what Jesus really teaches 
about this this idea, you know, you sow and it's going to come back. And and here's people actually living some of that with with whatever motivations that are causing them to do it, but they're doing it. But the best example is not even expecting it to come back. Not even that as a part of my motivation, but just sacrificially giving away because the king told me to. And I really am not looking for any, any payback on that. And you can just go through all of those and see everything that we do. When you look at energy, you look at what community looks like, what change looks like. Look at the change for a minute. There is no change on, on that very darkest quadrant of a self-seeker. It's just manipulation. I get caught cheating and uh, on, my, on my wife. I, I'll just say anything, do anything in order to somehow keep this thing going. I just am, am upset that, that I'm, my relationship is threatened, and so I'll do whatever I need to do. But, but I haven't really changed anything here. Here, in, where the brand expanders, there's not really change either. It's like, ah, I'm all, what, what do we believe? The Baptist faith and message, 2000s at it? And that, okay, yeah, yeah, I believe that. I'll sign that. And, um, and, and it's just conforming to what everybody else is saying. And... Uh, but, but that's not change. What, what do we believe as a church? What do we, you know, it, conforming is not change. Conforming is an outside pressure applied to you that shapes you in a certain way. But change in what we're looking at is something a little different than that. Here we, we understand that uh, change is transformation in this group here. And, and I can give you, and I can parade if I want to, people that I have seen who in very secular environments without Christ have had a transformative experience. Not an eternal transformative experience, but their life is a whole lot better now because they applied some truth to their life that uh, made some sense, and they're not the shipwreck that they used to be, and they were honest with a lot of the things that they were going through, and they were transparent about that that and that honesty and that transparency created a a better person and there's a transformation that has happened in there but the ultimate part of change is 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 the incarnation and there's lots of just ways that we can we can see that but when you look at the ultimate expression of of incarnation is we know we know the king himself resident in physical form in history and leading now today and then even inspiring us for Matthew 25 kind of thinking that when we even minister to people, we're ministering to them with all kinds of power and authority because sometimes we, we take them literally. Jesus says, when you've done to one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done to me. And some of us look at that person and say, I'm ministering to Jesus and seeing incredible power that goes in that whole we walk that, and you can just hit that, and obedience. When you look at that last one, this is probably hits it. Self-seekers, orthopraxy means right action. Orthodoxy, right thinking. There is no right action. There is no right thinking. In the brand expanders, lots of orthodoxy. Lots of right thinking. The Pharisees had lots of right thinking. But where was the right action? It wasn't there. Over here, no orthodoxy. Just orthopraxy. So no right thinking. It's just right action. But the place and the space that kingdom expanding takes place is orthodoxy and orthopraxy working hand and glove together. And so I draw some conclusions. And uh, the first one, this group of people, kingdom seekers, find the worldview of the brand expander immature. 
They don't get it. They don't want it. It's not enticing. It's not appetizing. It's a waste. It's silly. This, all this stuff that you're doing, all the resources that you're spending to amuse yourself and you call it in the name of God, I don't get it. I don't want it. There's a second one, and that is these people here respond. Kingdom seekers respond to kingdom expanders when they're really honestly exposed to them. If they can see a group of people who are seeing something and doing something that is different, they have this flicker in their spirit. They don't have the juice on a, on a protracted basis to continue on this kind of a life because they don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Yet they know there's a rightness to what's going on here. And when they see it, they want to be a part of it. You can plant churches with this group of people. When you find a social fault line that's in your, uh, in your neighborhood and you begin to gather a group of lost people around that social fault line and you begin to address that need and then you begin in the leadership begin to sort of disciple that group of people until they understand really what Christ is about. You can see some amazing, got lots of stories and examples of that kind of work there. These people respond when they see a church that has really pitched that ground. The next one. Kingdom seekers are relationally networked and prepackaged with credibility to influence self-seekers. I watch the draft move this way. I watch the, the self-seeker, when a, when a kingdom seeker, oftentimes it's a husband and a wife, and, and the, the wife might be in the kingdom seeker and the husband might be in the self-seeker. That's generally the way I watch this thing working. And, uh, and when that wife makes a move, the husband sees something that's going on, and he's all of a sudden moving into this other quadrant because he's seen a radical change in his wife. And, uh, and all of a sudden now his ears are perking up because he's seeing something that he knows is not religion. There's something honest that's going on in his wife's life or friend's life or parent's life or whatever the relationship is, and, uh, and you can watch the draft draw people up that way. The next one. Brand expanders will migrate to kingdom building when giving the opportunity. Some, there's the Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus that have just never had another opportunity. The only thing they've ever seen is kind of this. And they got this anxiety and they, they, they have this compelling in their spirit to be a part of something that lasts forever. Every step of obedience that we do in the kingdom of God is eternal. It lasts forever. It doesn't have a shelf life. It doesn't die. You can't find any of the Paul's churches today. They're not around. Because the, the local church is a temporal vehicle for the eternal purpose of the kingdom of God. You can't find his churches today. But we are still influenced by the fact that the apostle, excuse me, I didn't mean to spit on you, the apostle Paul was still on this earth, right? Can't we? We, all of us have been, and, and that's, I mean, that's an easy example. But throughout Christian history, men and women of God who nobody knows and nobody remembers has impacted your life. The, the ripples in the pond continue and continue and continue. Kingdom expanders require resolute resistance to the temptations of brand expanders for the sake of the kingdom. Just being transparent. Forever, our attaboys have come from measurements that might not be all that kingdom. The things that we celebrate 
nickels and noses, buildings, budgets, things that we celebrate might not be the best measurements for what the kingdom is about. And, uh, and if we're going to be and choose to be, we know at the end of the day we are going to be judged by Jesus. <laughs> and we are going to have a face-to-face meeting with Jesus. And he's going to ask a very simple question. Pastors, I gave you stewardship over lives, and I gave you stewardship over resources. How would you use them? And if our answer is more top left than top right, um, we're going to have a reckoning on that. Knowing that day is in front of all of us, we have to screw up the courage and the conviction to live in the top right space, even though no one might never give us an attaboy, might never pass on the back, might never get a in a conference gig or anything like that. Might get, and so the last one: kingdom seekers find fulfillment in their quest only when they discover the king. And we've heard this so many times, but it's good news, good works together. One clarifies, the other verifies. They work together, hand in glove. And, uh, and if we're just one or the other, we're, either, um, we're, we're in trouble either way. And so the last part of the book, and I won't even do this, but the last part of the book is just talking about how to design a church that occupies that, that right-hand thing. And, and again, I'm not talking about what it looks like. I'm talking about the thinking and the principles behind the thinking. And so that's the last part. So any questions or thoughts? Yes, sir. Okay, it's a great, really good question. Um, Evangelism, when you're evangelizing with the already evangelized, they are already taught through experience that evangelism is hard and doesn't work. And, um, and, you know, don't expect anything. and, And so... But if you're evangelizing with the pre-evangelized, um, they don't know that yet. In fact, they don't know that at all. And they're, what they're going to experience is something different. And, um, and so you kind of go in, like, you know what I'm talking about. You can go into a gospel conversation with somebody expecting to be rejected, and guess what? You will be, right? And so if you go into that conversation um, thinking a little bit differently, like, okay, here's where I'm, I'm really, I think, getting this to where you're going, that um, this person here doesn't always behave like a kingdom seeker, but I see things that are going on in his life or her life that, you know, he, his life is way more than just the, 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 the straw man that the, the ain't it awful preachers paint. You know, his life is, is characterized by some of these altruistic impulses that he's doing, he's involved in. And uh, so I'm going to appeal to him on that basis. And then I'm going to eventually um, lead him to the source of those impulses. And, uh, and so practical ideas. We never, ever do a mission trip with uh, just Christian people. And if you don't do a mission trip with just Christian people, that t- t- changes the kind of mission trip you're going to do. So what kind of mission trips do we do? We do a lot, of, a lot of helping other people. And when we do a lot of helping other people, we can get lost people to go with us. 
And so we load up the minivans and we try to do 50-50 and we load up and we come to New Orleans and we bang on roofs or, you know, we do whatever we need to do. And from where I live in Toronto down there, that's, that's 24 hours driving each way. That's lots of sharing. And usually on the way back, you know, we're all regenerate or a good chunk of us anyway. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm getting to, no, nobody's ever always there, always there. But there's some people that are so depraved, they're never there. You know what I mean? And there's some people that are flickering. And I, I capture those flickers and try to capitalize on. Where, where, I, where I have ministered, like, I can't hit an 80-year-old lady. And I mean, literally hit her. I can't talk to a, an 80-year-old lady. And um, I can't hit her either. But um, not that, that uh, would not, in her core beliefs, believe the postmodern idea that all roads lead to God. I mean, that's not a new thing in Canada. That's something that's multiple generations that are, are in there in, the, in our multicultural environment that we have there. And, uh, and so 100% of my witnessing opportunities, 100% of them are going to go there. And, um, and so that being a fact, I, I, and, I, and whatever percentage I think is a growing percentage in the United States as well, and if that's, that's a fact, then you have to come up with an idea of how you're going to hit that, which is your question. And um, how I have, have, have wrestled through and come up with an answer is I, I see three barriers that most people have before coming to Christ. Um, and if I were doing it here, I'd, I'd just put them here. I'm going to be so quick here. This is, this is in the book a little bit. Emotional burial intellectual barrier and a volitional barrier. The emotional barriers are places that have had a lot of Christian experience and scorched earth. And, and they can give you firsthand examples of why they don't want to be a Christian because pastor so-and-so or, you know, I don't have, I have very few emotional barriers in the places that, that, I, that I'm ministering in because there's just no exposure. Intellectual barriers. Now that's the one we deal with a lot. And that is, um, let's use your, the idea here. Uh, I, I, I'm going to work. I get up in the morning every day, and my neighbor across the street is a Muslim, and, uh, and I see his incredible, intense faith he has. And then I know there's a Chinese family over here who's Buddhist, and I'm seeing the same thing. And, um, and, and I'm nothing. And so I guess, you know, the, on, the only logical thinking rational conclusion you can come to in that environment is then you know if there is a god all these guys must be on the same path and and so i have to i have to understand they're not making a um they're not thumbing their nose at anybody when they're making that statement that's their logical deduction from the experience that that surrounds them i don't have to get upset i don't have to do anything like that i just have to say that is the truth that they believe and they've gathered that opinion from all the experiences that they've, they've seen around them. So my job is to show them something different. So how do I do that? Well, in my conversations with them, um, 100% of the time, we're going to get there. Well, you know, I really do think that, you know, all paths lead to the same place. All roads lead to the same place. And so, you know, how I respond to that is, yeah, I agree. And they go, what? And I said, yeah, I think all religions lead to the same place. And that is away from God, including the Christian one. They go, what? And, uh, 
And I, I said, yeah, because, you know, religion is, is kind of our way of somehow founding acceptance to God. And then I get to give the, the gospel message of why Jesus came. And so all I'm saying is in, in a church sort of church strategy of how to reach a, a community, if this is your biggest barrier in a very uh, postmodern environment, if that's your biggest area, the, the, the witness knocks down the emotional barrier. The word of God knocks down the intellectual barrier. And, and the spirit of God, obviously the spirit works through this whole process, is the one that finally knocks down the volitional barrier. And so you have to figure out where your big barriers are in the places that you're, you are and figure out strategies on how you knock them down. And if it's, an, if it's an intellectual barrier, you've got to figure out strategies on how you reasonably present the gospel in a way that they will not turn it off, but they'll continue listening. And you can continue to teach. Does that help? Some? <laughs> well, this is where I will get myself in trouble. Um, my, my experience. When I moved to um, Toronto to plant this church, right from the beginning, it was a church that wasn't was going to be a mother church, a, pl- a church planning church, right, right from the very beginning. And... Um, Many in our tribe, there wasn't many in our tribe, <laughs> there was a few, but even the ones that were there weren't very happy that we were coming. And I, cause somehow we were seen as competition. I mean, Seven million people in Toronto and we had like 20-some churches and I think the biggest one was 90. And uh, so, how ridiculous. Um, where I found my most common allies were two other churches that were both of different denominations. And the senior pastors of those two churches and I met together regularly for summits, for praying together. We encouraged each other. We, you know, it was, it was a sense where we were just sharpening each other. Life for me was coming and meeting with these two other denominational leaders, not my own tribe. And so, am I fired? Is anybody here? Okay, Kevin's not here. Good. Yeah, Todd. Yeah. I think we might be out of time. And so uh, I'll just hang out here if you want to do some one-on-one. Be glad to. But thanks so much for this.